Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, today with a message entitled, Christ the Better Isaac. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It is remarkable. Every ancient culture in the world thinks in terms of sacrifice. I know that modern ones don't tend to, but the ancients all thought that some sort of sacrifice was necessary in their devotion either to God or to the gods. Something needed to die. Now, why is that? Well, for one, we might think about the account of Cain and Abel, the story of one brother who murders the other. It's the story of the first murder in human history, but what gave rise to such animosity and hatred? Well, It was because the sacrifice that was offered up to God made by Cain was unacceptable to God. And meanwhile, the sacrifice made by the younger brother Abel was acceptable to God. And in rage, Cain murders his brother. Well, outside of what made one sacrifice acceptable and the other not is another matter. What is it that inspires both of these men to offer up sacrifices to God? And interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't tell us why nor at the point in time in human history do we find a command from God that that would be required. That would come later in the time of Moses, but at least so we find it in Cain and Abel, sacrifice seems related to an act of thanksgiving. To offer to God the best portion of what you have is an understanding that God has given you all that you have. Hence, sacrifice is a grateful acknowledgement that all that I have comes from God, It's a willingness to surrender some of that in faith, believing that God will take care of me in the future. And that's what the practice of sacrifice seemed to mean at first. Well, a second example of sacrifice comes from Genesis chapter 8, comes immediately after the flood. The waters have subsided from the earth, and Noah and his family are the only human survivors. And Genesis 8, 20 to 21 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Again, no explanation is given as to why Noah had done this. And as before, we're not given a command, but as his first act of thankfulness for his deliverance from the flood, Noah takes some of the clean animals and birds and offers them up on an altar. And clearly it's an act of thankfulness, but there's more. The mention that it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord and that consequently God makes a covenant with the human race that he'll never destroy the earth with a flood. Well, all of that tells us that this act of sacrifice had more meaning than simply sacrifice. Something in this act of sacrifice takes away God's anger for human sin. In short, the text tells us that it's an atonement. Man sacrifices something, and in consequence, the anger of God is removed. Now, from Noah, the human race spreads throughout the earth. And so from this, we won't be surprised to find that not only is there an account of a universal flood in almost every culture on earth, but so also is the practice of offering up a sacrifice. Every ancient culture sacrificed, believing that something had to die in order to appease God or the gods. 
Eventually, in the fullness of time, Israel would slay a Passover lamb and spread its blood on the door frames and lintel of their houses. And on that fateful night when the angel of death came to visit the firstborn in Egypt, all those who had sacrificial blood spread on their houses were blessed to find that the angel of death had passed over them. But that was yet to come. For a period of time after Noah, the practice of sacrifice was just built into worship. All peoples sacrificed in worship. Of course, because of human depravity, there's an incredibly dark side to this. It's called human sacrifice. And many ancient cultures practiced human sacrifices. You know, the ancient Chinese, the Incas, the Mayans, a great many cultures around Israel all practiced the abhorrent act of sacrificing people, either slaves or even their own children on an altar to the gods. And that's where the story of Christmas leads us today. This is the story of Jesus, the greater Isaac. So let's learn some lessons from Isaac. He's the son of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, the father of all who believe, was called by God. Years later, Joshua described the Abraham story very succinctly. Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3 says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now, there's so much in those few words. In a time when the knowledge of God had been all but forgotten, in a time when people had substituted the knowledge of the one true creator God for a plethora of gods and goddesses, everything from gods of the rivers and trees and moon and the planets, at a time when the knowledge of God was forgotten, instead of sending another flood, God did something remarkable. It seems he had remembered the sacrifice of Noah, and the human race was spared. Instead, God took a polytheist by the name of Abraham and took him out of his land and gave him the land of Canaan, and to this man he gave Isaac. And here's where the story of Isaac and the story of Jesus have some remarkable similarities. Isaac was born to very aged parents. Abraham was now 99 years old and his wife 90. Years ago, God had promised Abraham he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as of the grains of sand on the seashore. But Abraham and Sarah were unable to have children. Now the age of childbearing was long past. And it's against this hopeless situation that God changes his name. Formerly it was Abram. Now it's Abraham, the father of many nations. And the promise is fantastic. It seems like an illusion. Now, how do two old people so far beyond childbearing hear such a promise? And yet God said, in a year, that's going to happen. And with that in mind, we read Genesis 21, to 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And I have borne him a son in his old age. And Isaac means laughter. It's not the laughter of a cynic, nor is it the laughter of a person who's telling a joke. It's the laughter of sheer delight. It's the laughter of a man who finally sees that nothing is impossible for God. It's also the laughter of a person who has come to see that God designed it just that way. 
this boy's birth would take away all doubt that this boy was the child of promise. This is where the similarity between Isaac and Jesus begins. Isaac's birth was prophesied, as was Jesus' birth. But in terms of Jesus, the prophecies carried on for thousands of years, ever growing in intensity. Isaac's birth meant that God really would bless the whole world, and the same is true of the birth of Jesus. But Jesus is the means whereby God would bless the world, so that unlike Isaac, people from every tongue and tribe would worship Jesus as their Savior. But Jesus, like Isaac, came about in impossible circumstances. In his case, his parents weren't too old. Rather, his mother was a virgin, and his earthly father was, in fact, not his father at all. Jesus was born to a young maiden who had never known a man, and he was born without a human father, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. You know, to this day, the skeptics laugh. It's the cynical laugh. After all, who would be so ignorant to believe that a woman could conceive without the sperm of a man penetrating the egg of the woman within her womb? Cynics tell us that this must be either a part of the ancients filled with superstition or not understanding how conception happens. But that miracles happen, well, that to the cynics is impossible. But of course, if Jesus came into the world in the normal way in which all children come into the world, well, he would not be the child of promise. The question will always be this. If you believe in a God who created all things out of nothing, why then does it seem so difficult to believe that God would cause a virgin to conceive and bear a son? Perhaps we should remember the words of Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And so, two children of promise. One was Isaac, whose contributions in this world were relatively small, and yet he was the promise of salvation that would come to the whole world. And the other Jesus, whose presence in this world has changed even the human calendar, so that we date everything to this day from his arrival into the world. But the birth of Jesus, as was true of the birth of Isaac, could not have occurred had God not supernaturally willed that it should be so. For many reasons, this has been a challenging year, but a year where God has once again proven himself faithful in providing for the needs of this ministry and have allowed Back to the Bible Canada to not only sustain our Bible teaching and engagement efforts, but to expand those efforts through new mediums and into new locations across Canada and in fact around the world. Your faithfulness has made this ministry possible. And our prayer is that you will continue to stand with us in support of this ministry for 2022. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's word and a trust in kingdom work. The ministry target this year is to raise $490,000 during the month of December. This is a significant goal, but a necessary one. So please join us in this effort by sending your year-end gift by midnight of December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The greatest similarity between Isaac and Jesus has to do with our theme of sacrifice. Genesis 22, 1-2 says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Of course, at the outset, it sounds horrific. I've already made mention of the pagan practice of sacrificing human beings. And later on, when God gave his law, he'd be very clear to give strict laws about this ancient practice. Deuteronomy 18 verse 10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. And then in Deuteronomy 12 verse 31, in describing the nations that would surround Israel, God states his law. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. In short, the practice is abhorrent. Now then, against this background of later biblical material, we're forced to examine this puzzling command. How could God ask such a thing of Abraham? And furthermore, this command clearly goes against the earlier promises that God has made. Genesis 21 verse 12 is quite specific. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be named. So as Abraham climbs that mountain, what's going through his mind? You know, the writer of Hebrews offers up an explanation. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Notice the words he considered, or to put it in my own words. After the command came, Abraham had to reason his way through the process. God could not be asking him to kill the heir of the promise of God. But if God killed the heir of his promise, then the promise would die with the death of Isaac. And then God would have been proved to have been a capricious liar. That can't be the case. So then, how to understand this command to offer up his son? And Abraham, knowing that what was undoubtedly true, both that God had made a promise that couldn't be broken, that God had given a command that must be obeyed, he sets out with his son. The old man is convinced he will see a miracle. He will kill the boy and God will raise him from the dead. And in so doing, God will signal again that this boy really is the child of promise and that a promise of God can't fail. That reasons Abraham is the reason for all of this. And so Abraham journeys to the mountain and when he arrives, he tells his servant to stay there with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come back to you. That is, I and the boy will go up the mountain and I and the boy will come back to you. Of this Abraham is convinced. And the two climb the mountain, but Isaac, who doesn't know what lies ahead, has questions. Here he said, we have wooden fire, for clearly we're going up to the mountain to sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice, he asks, and dad says, God will provide. Now, of course, it is true, but as we know, this is not the whole truth. For the sacrifice that God will provide is the boy who asks the question. So what was in Abraham's mind as they climbed up the mountain? Was he thinking, I hope my reasoning was right? This better work. I'm risking everything on this. We're not told what the old man thought, but his steps were determined as he climbed the very mountain that so many years later, Solomon would build on it a temple and where thousands upon thousands of animals were later to be sacrificed as an act of worship to the one true God. See, Genesis 22 verse 9 simply says that Abraham built the altar and then he bound his son and laid him on the top of the wood. We're not told if there was a struggle. I don't think there was. 
At that time, Abraham would have explained all that he knew to Isaac, and Isaac, in full submission to his father, allowed himself to be bound and await his father's will. And so Abraham reaches out his hand and takes into it the knife with which he will plunge down into his son and offer him up then as a burnt offering to God with the hope that even if this son was born against the natural order of things, so also then this son will rise from his own ashes. But just as the father raises the knife, an angel calls to him from heaven. I see you fear God. I can see that. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Behold, God has provided a ram, a male sheep, caught right there in the bush. Arise, kill the ram, tie it to the altar, and sacrifice him in place of your son. And so we see that Abraham's reasoning had been wrong. God would not permit him to kill his son and raise him from the dead. No, no, that was not the sign that God had in mind. Rather, God would show that there would be a substitutionary atonement. Something else must be slain for Isaac to live. That was what God had in mind. Now it's Christmas season, and we're considering the greatness of Christ who is born to us. Jesus is so much greater than Isaac. Unlike Isaac, when Jesus climbed up that very same mountain 2,000 years later, and entered into the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and then shouted, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, he knew very well what he was doing. He was pushing the Jewish religious establishment into a corner and they would have no choice at all but to kill him. Indeed, earlier on, he told his disciples precisely that. John 10, 17 to 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. You see the difference between Jesus and Isaac? It's very plain. Isaac was led up the mountain in ignorance. Jesus climbed the mountain with the full knowledge that the father had called him to do it. That's why Luke 9.51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is, he resolved in his heart not to allow anything to dissuade him from climbing the mountain of sacrifice. Indeed, Matthew records that when Peter said to him that he would never die in Jerusalem, Jesus immediately recognized those words as having been incited by Satan. Get behind me, Satan, he said. And so Jesus climbed the mountain up to the temple, for he knew that he was the one to be laid on the altar. And when Isaac was laid to the altar, he was laid there by the loving hands of his earthly father. But when Jesus was bound to the cross, he was bound there by the hateful and frenzied crowd who, enraged by the spirit of Satan, sought to do away with the Son of God. Isaac suffered a little. Jesus suffered more than we can imagine. But of course, the greatest difference between Jesus and Isaac is that in the case of Isaac, God provided a sacrificial ram to be a substitute for him. But this was only temporary. It was insufficient. Remember, I said that all cultures have sacrificed, for they know that something needs to die in order for them to live. However, the ram that was sacrificed for Isaac and for his descendants so that the blessing of God could enter the world, that substitute ram would never be enough. Hebrews 10 verse 4 simply says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now we might ask, well, if that's true, that sacrificing rams and lambs and bulls and goats by the thousands never took away people's sins, then what in the world was all that sacrificing for? 
Well, in order to understand that, let's read Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, a detailed study of the law reveals that the sacrifices in the temple took away the sins of ritual uncleanness and also those sins that could be paid back. You know, for instance, if you stole, you paid the person back, you added a fifth to the amount, then came to the altar for sacrifice. But if you broke the Ten Commandments, there was nothing in the temple sacrifices that could take away sins. Rather, the sacrifices then would be a reminder of sin and the hope that God would send a sacrifice that could remove sins. And then came the greater Isaac. No ram was provided to substitute for him, for he was the ram, the sacrifice that would forgive Isaac's sins as well as yours and mine. And so let's think about how this impacts our understanding of Christmas. It's fascinating to me that the very first guests that came to greet the child Jesus into this world were shepherds. And because they were shepherds, it's quite likely also, given their location, that they were raising sheep to be slaughtered at the altar. God sent them to see the one sheep whose blood would eternally take away the sins of all who put their hope in him. So contemplate Christmas, the one who lies in the manger, the greater Isaac. Let's rejoice. Thanks so much, John. John, are we correct in contrasting Isaac going up the mountain to be sacrificed with Christ's sacrifice? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we are. It's the, it's the right way to understand these things. We should never read, um, you know, the First Testament and reinterpret it. We're certainly not doing that. We continue to hold that these were historic events and they meant something in their time. But now that Christ has come, we recognize that there is a fulfillment of these events that speak of a greater reality. And so, you know, Isaac's sacrifice on the altar does mirror Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So let's uh, read the Bible through those lens. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As Christmas is upon us, my thoughts of the Holy Land are magnified. I begin to reflect upon the stories of Jesus' birth, life, sacrifice, and ultimate glorification more closely. And in so doing, my anticipation of the upcoming 2022 Israel experience grows. There we walk the paths and places that bring the stories of the Bible to life, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, and experience communion at the Garden Tomb. As time draws close, we invite you to join us for this adventure, April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. The full itinerary is available online, but space is limited, and we're nearing capacity, so register soon. 
For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash events.